Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions of murder, assault, sexual assault, and domestic violence. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. In the spring of 1984, 33-year-old Carlton Gary lay in a musty hotel room in Albany, Georgia. It was only 4 p.m., but he was exhausted. He'd escaped custody for a third time, and he'd been on the run for weeks, driving up and down the East Coast, trying to stay one step ahead of the police. He had no intention of returning to prison and was not afraid to go out with a bang. That's why he kept a 38 caliber revolver on the bedside table, just in case. Little did he know he'd have to use it sooner than he thought. Down the hallway, a SWAT team slowly crept towards Carlton's door. They passed by the rooms in a steady column, each with a hand on the man in front of them. It was tense. Guns were cocked, fingers hovered over triggers. At the head of the line, two officers carried a battering ram. They soon reached Carlton's door. Carlton had always been a man on the move, but in the next few seconds, he'd need to move quicker than he ever had before. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're wrapping up our exploration of Carlton Gary, the so-called stalking strangler. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last time, we heard how Carlton Gary's latest prison escape took him back to his childhood home, Columbus, Georgia. Soon after, a predator, some called the Stalking Strangler, terrorized the elderly women of the city in a month-long killing spree. Today, we'll ask why Carlton, a ladies' man, might have been the one targeting these older victims. We'll follow Carlton as he's chased by police across the South until we explore the haunting possibility that he wasn't actually the killer at all and that the real stalking strangler might still be out there. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was. And I was able to see it in a different light. And it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. By late September of 1977, 27-year-old Carlton Gary had been in Columbus, Georgia for a few weeks. The charismatic musician sported a stylish afro, expensive clothes, and a devilish smile. He hung out at clubs and bars around town, wooing multiple women along the way. Carlton might have been all smiles, but around him, the entire city was on edge. Because ever since Carlton arrived, a killer had terrorized the middle-class neighborhood of Winton. So far, he'd choked two elderly white women to death and violently assaulted another. Some residents claimed they heard their doorbells ring on the night that Fern Jackson was killed. Others said a prowler had broken into their homes that night, too. They believed it was the man the local press had dubbed the Stalking Strangler. These people didn't know why the killer had spared them. They were shaken to their core, but thankful to be alive. The authorities offered $11,000 for information leading to the arrest of the Strangler. They were ready to throw everything at the wall so that this killer didn't hurt anyone else. But they were too late. Police found 55-year-old Beverly Breyer on October 2nd, about a week after the previous victim. She was alive, but in bad shape, lying by the side of her house, assaulted, strangled, and left for dead. They took her to the hospital as quickly as they could, but she soon passed away. By this point, police were working off limited information. They knew that two victims had their cars stolen, both which were found nearby in a predominantly black neighborhood. Additionally, the appearance of the pubic hair found at the first crime scene led police to suspect the stalking strangler was a black man. So authorities zeroed in on Beverly's boyfriend, 25-year-old Jerome Livis. Within hours, he was in their custody. And while being interrogated, Jerome not only confessed to assaulting Beverly, he admitted to killing the other two women as well. The city, and Winton in particular, most likely felt a huge sense of relief the stalking strangler was off the streets. Or so they thought. Behind closed doors, authorities knew something was amiss. Jerome showed signs of having an intellectual disability. In an interview with reporters, he said the Winton women weren't his only victims. He'd also assassinated JFK and other high-profile politicians. Finally, after being charged, Jerome retracted his initial confession altogether. All of this goes to show that confessions are much more complicated than they seem. Vanessa is going to take over the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note that Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Psychologists have noted that voluntary false confessions, while rare, aren't unheard of. For example, when aviator Charles Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped in 1932, several people came forward to claim responsibility. According to Saul Kasson, a professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, the motives can vary depending on the circumstances and the person. 
While some confess because they're looking for attention, others admit to the crime because they may be experiencing a mental health crisis. Ultimately, until evidence can back them up, confessions should be taken with a grain of salt. Luckily, the Columbus Police Department knew this too. They realized that while Jerome was a killer and had strangled his older girlfriend Beverly to death, he wasn't responsible for the other murders. While police spent time on Jerome, the rate of break-ins surged throughout the city. For instance, around this time, someone stole a pistol from a Columbus home. Sure, it might have been just another robbery, but the police couldn't help but wonder if it was connected to the strangler. They still didn't have much to go on, especially without any eyewitness accounts. Gertrude Miller, the only survivor of the strangler, still couldn't remember what he looked like. However, in October, she tried to change that. Gertrude underwent hypnosis in an attempt to remember every detail. She sat in a room with the hypnotherapist, trying to recall moments from the worst day of her life. It wasn't a pleasant task, but she'd do anything to put the man who attacked her behind bars. The session stretched on without any breakthroughs until, suddenly, Gertrude's memories came rushing back. What once was hazy became clear. The man who assaulted her was slender with a high forehead, and he was black, she was sure of it. She even remembered he was a, quote, pretty boy. But despite Gertrude's assurance, hypnosis isn't as effective as many would like to believe. Memory is fickle, and trying to recall certain events or details can be difficult, and hypnosis isn't a magic solution. Worse still, it could lead to a false sense of confidence. Joseph Green, co-author of a study at Ohio State University, said, quote, While it may be true that hypnosis is no worse than other memory retrieval techniques in terms of accuracy, the downfall is that people may be more confident in memories they generate while under hypnosis. This means that in the absence of evidence, hypnosis will cause people to cling to their recalled memories, whether they're true or not. The Columbus PD did just that. Despite the problems with hypnosis, they took Gertrude's insight as gospel. First, they suspected their man was black. Now, they were sure. But while the cops were investigating Jerome and putting Gertrude under hypnosis, the real stalking strangler was still out there. At 89 years old, Florence Schiebel lived alone in the upstairs unit of a Winton duplex. She needed a walker to move about her home, and her senses weren't what they used to be. She was deaf, and her vision was mostly gone, leaving her unable to make out all but the most basic shapes. And eventually, someone took advantage of this vulnerability. On the morning of October 21st, Florence's downstairs neighbor heard the familiar sounds of the 89-year-old's walker as it tapped across the floor until about 11 a.m. After that, Florence didn't make a peep. Police believe that's because Carlton Gary had made his way to Florence's door that morning and found it unlocked. He stepped into the apartment, careful not to make a sound. Not that it mattered. Florence wouldn't have heard him coming. When Carlton reached the frail woman, he beat and sexually assaulted her. Then he strangled her with a stocking until she stopped breathing. Considering her age, it likely didn't take much effort. He abandoned her on the ground, partially clothed, and left through the same door he came in. When police arrived, they found a footprint and fingerprint at the scene. The footprint was identical to the ones found at Jean de Menstein's home. But authorities didn't seem to uncover anything else at Florence's apartment. At least nothing that gave them any new leads. 
Worse still, their killer showed no signs of stopping. Martha Thurmond had worked as a beloved second-grade teacher for years. Now, at 69, she had firmly settled into retired life. But during the past several weeks, she, like everyone else in Winton, was worried about the murders in the neighborhood. So, Martha made her home safer. She added a deadbolt to her front door, installed bars on her windows, and nailed them shut. As a woman living alone, Martha didn't want to take any chances. But these measures weren't enough. Up next, the stalking strangler dismantles the locks. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Four days after murdering Florence Schiebel, 27-year-old Carlton Gary crouched in front of Martha Thurman's front door. It was late at night and he wanted to get inside. But first, he'd have to get past Martha's security measures. Though Martha took the time to install a deadbolt, she didn't install it correctly. By this point, Carlton had escaped from authorities twice, so it didn't take him long to bypass a faulty lock. Once he did, he slowly opened the door and crept inside. Sometime between 1 and 4 a.m., Carlton attacked, raped, and killed Martha in the same manner as the other three Winton victims. Then he slipped out of her home undetected. Martha's loss was brutal for the community. She had a lot of friends, and her death deeply affected them. They were not only bereft, but scared. If installing locks and nailing windows couldn't keep someone safe, what would? Some elderly women moved out of their homes and in with family. They were terrified of suffering the same fate. Residents that stayed took all the protection they could get, even if that meant getting help from some unsavory characters. This was Georgia in the late 1970s, about a decade after the civil rights movement. Racism was still widespread, and the police department's theory that the murders of these elderly white women were committed by a black man only stoked those tensions and drew out the Ku Klux Klan. Members of the KKK, who still had a foothold in the area, patrolled Winton, looking for a rogue black killer. It had echoes of the lynchings from the earlier part of the 20th century, where false accusations were used as ruses to hunt, mutilate, and hang innocent black men. The difference was, this time, the stalking strangler was far from innocent. With so much surveillance in Winton, the killer seemed to be laying low. Weeks passed without another victim. The police fielded tips from all over, but most were just calls from jumpy neighbors, dead ends. Authorities were frustrated. The strangler was still out there somewhere. Carlton Gary had just brutally murdered two women, and he may have also gotten wind of the citywide hunt for their killer. But he wasn't hiding. He was living it up in plain sight. 
While the KKK patrolled the streets of Winton, Carlton was continuing his modeling career. Advertisements featuring his smiling face played over the television several times a day to the entire city. Carlton knew how to keep up appearances, no matter what he did in private. There were no signs that he was anything other than a charming, attractive model. He certainly didn't seem to have any reason to commit these savage attacks. Carlton did have a taste for the good life and likely felt the need to continue his lifestyle, but he didn't take anything from his Winton victims' homes, so it didn't seem like money was a motivation. Carlton was also constantly surrounded by women, so it's unlikely he needed to seek out sex either. Instead, it might have been revenge and power that were important to him. Because Carlton grew up poor, it's not hard to imagine he envied well-off white women. He'd gone to high school very close to Winton, so he was likely forced to face the wealth disparity every day. Perhaps this disparity felt the most acute when he had to dig through the trash for food. And now it's possible he sought revenge as a form of justice. Arlene Stilwell, head of psychology at the State University of New York at Potsdam, said, quote, Successful revenge appears to make the Avengers feel satisfied that equity has been restored. Carlton might have wanted to bring the chaos of his childhood to Winton, which seemingly had everything. He also killed these women with their own clothing, effectively wielding their possessions against them. And as the new year approached, Carlton wasn't done. Just after Christmas in 1977, 74-year-old Kathleen Woodruff prepared for the new year in her large Winton home. She'd been on her own since her husband died years before. The holidays always stirred up complicated emotions, joys of years past and wistful memories of those no longer around to share the season. But more than anything, it must have been lonely. Unfortunately for Kathleen, she wouldn't be alone for long. On that cool Georgia night, Carlton walked down the streets of Winton. It was quiet. He strolled past the homes, getting a quick look at the life within their well-lit windows. Soon, the lights in those homes would be off and the neighborhood would go to sleep. That's when Carlton would strike. Not long after midnight, he broke into Kathleen's home, cutting open a screen before climbing through a window. He attacked and raped her. Then he strangled her with a scarf until she stopped breathing. Within an hour, Carlton slipped back onto the sidewalk and ambled home, like nothing happened. After Kathleen's death, the police department thought it was time to take their investigation to the next level. They formed the Strangling Task Force. The unit hit the streets of Columbus and interviewed anyone that stood out, particularly if they were black. They asked for names, addresses, and social security numbers in order to track people's movements, looking for patterns. Eventually, they ran into Carlton. Now, Carlton had a lot to worry about. He'd killed multiple women, but also he was a fugitive, having escaped from jail just a few months before the murders. But the 27-year-old was cunning. Each time he was stopped, he gave a different name, and the police were none the wiser leaving Carlton to come and go as he pleased. About a month later, around 5 a.m., someone used a screwdriver to jimmy open the window of a Winton home. Whether or not this was Carlton is unclear, but the horror that followed had all the markings of the stalking strangler. The man stalked through the house until he entered the bedroom of 74-year-old Ruth Schwab. 
He climbed on Ruth as she lay fast asleep, grabbed her throat with one hand, and held a stocking in the other. She awoke as he wrapped the garment around her neck. But this time was different. The killer didn't know that Ruth had been active her whole life and still jogged or walked every day. She wasn't fragile, and she was determined to live. Ruth struggled against her silent attacker, pushing at him as he towered over her, but her vision faded as the stocking around her throat tightened. With her last bit of strength, she groped around her bed, looking for the hidden button that would trigger the alarm at her next-door neighbor's home. And just as things went dark, Ruth pushed the button. The alarm went off. Her neighbor called the police, who pulled up just two minutes later. When the cops arrived, they noticed an open window and quickly located Ruth in her room. She'd passed out, but was still breathing. They'd made it just in time. The officers fanned out through the neighborhood as command called in a helicopter to circle the area. This time, they weren't going to let their suspect get away. But even with all those resources, they found no trace of the killer fleeing. There was a reason for this. He wasn't running at all. Little did they know that only two blocks away, the strangler had broken into the home of 78-year-old Mildred Borum. Instead of quietly waiting out the search, he attacked Mildred and choked her with a cord from her window blinds. Once she was dead, he hid in the house for hours until things calmed down outside. Then the assailant slipped out of the home and back into the neighborhood. The police didn't realize their blunder until later, when someone discovered Mildred's body. They found a size 10 footprint at the scene, but little else. Not even a usable fingerprint. Those on the case were exhausted. It seemed like the killer was running circles around them. Two months after Mildred was killed, 61-year-old Janet Coffer was murdered in the same manner. This time, they found a bite mark on Janet's breast and made an impression of the marking in case they captured a suspect. That same day, Carlton committed a robbery, but it wasn't at another victim's house. This time, he held up a Burger King. This was just his first taste of getting fast cash from fast food. For the next year, Carlton jumped between Columbus and Greenville, South Carolina, robbing burger chains and diners. He was quick, and the authorities were always too late to catch him. The press called him the Steakhouse Bandit. By February 1979, 28-year-old Carlton had stolen from 10 establishments. This change from murderous violence to happy meal heists is a strange one. Likely, Carlton was stealing out of necessity. It appeared his modeling income didn't support his lifestyle, and Carlton didn't want to fall back into poverty. With each drive through holdup, he kept that past life in the rearview mirror. But that February, one of Carlton's escape plans fell apart. He robbed a chain near Greenville and fled into the nearby woods. He didn't last long. When officers from Greenville PD arrived, they deployed bloodhounds, who made quick work of finding him. After two years, Carlton was back in custody. Perhaps now the police would get his prints, put two and two together, and charge him for the Strangler murders. The Greenville authorities would put a stop to the madness, and the senior women of Winton would be safe once again. But they didn't know who they were dealing with. Up next, Carlton makes his final escape. Now the end of the story. 
In February 1979, police in South Carolina brought in 28-year-old Carlton Gary and fingerprinted him. As far as they knew, they'd caught the steakhouse bandit. They had no idea they had a serial killer in handcuffs. A jury found him guilty of armed robbery. A judge sentenced him to 21 years, but he was eligible for parole in seven. Though he was back in a cell, Carlton was likely relieved that the Greenville police hadn't connected him to the homicides in Columbus. The time in prison wasn't all that bad. For the next five years, he used his charm to win over his jailers. He seemed trustworthy and was rewarded for being a good inmate. In 1984, officials transferred him to a minimum security prison. After being charmed for years, they were likely convinced that Carlton wasn't a flight risk. Of course, they were wrong. The powers that be placed Carlton on barbershop detail, giving him even more freedom to move around. In March of 1984, two years before being eligible for parole, he calmly walked out of the facility with another inmate, unnoticed. While the authorities apprehended the other man, Carlton got away. Remember, this was his third escape from authorities. He knew what he was doing. But the fugitive wasn't home free. Little did he know, on the day he escaped in South Carolina, authorities in Columbus were putting the pieces together on the stalking strangler. During the time Carlton was incarcerated, police were still trying to track down leads. Time and time again, they turned up empty-handed. But then they remembered the pistol that was taken from a Winton home around the time Florence Schiebel was killed. They traced the stolen gun to a town in Michigan where a man had tried to register it. He had no idea the pistol was stolen. He had bought it from a family friend who said he'd gotten it from his nephew. And this nephew's name was Carlton Gary. Not long after, officials compared Carlton's fingerprints to those found at a few of the crime scenes. According to police, they were a match. As the DA said, the gun made Gary a suspect. The prince made him a defendant. The police were relieved to finally put a name to their suspect. There was just one problem. Carlton had escaped from prison and could kill again. The Columbus PD called up their colleagues in South Carolina to let them know the so-called Steakhouse Bandit had a different nickname further south. They needed to find and apprehend him. Carlton was dangerous. He was also hard to track. As the Greenville police gave chase, Carlton traveled along the coast, meeting with friends in Columbus and Gainesville, Florida, always looking over his shoulder. Although it seems like his paranoia didn't weigh on him too much, he spent time with several girlfriends and dealt drugs to keep afloat. He even met up with his Uncle David, just like he did as a kid after traveling 600 miles all on his own. At some point, he might have started to feel like he was home free. But as Carlton relaxed, police closed in. They tracked him for months, interrogating his contacts to get information on his whereabouts. Eventually, they tapped the phone line of one of Carlton's girlfriends and waited. Soon, the wait paid off. Sometime in early May, Carlton called her frantic. He'd made a drug sale and asked her to bring a stash of coke to his location. He was staying at a Holiday Inn in Albany, Georgia. As Carlton lay on his hotel bed, thinking about his next move, a SWAT team burst through his door. The officers, clad in tactical gear, raced towards Carlton. It only took a few seconds, but it felt like an eternity. His mind went blank and his instincts kicked in. 
He rolled to his side and reached for the gun on the nightstand. He must have known the odds were against him, but he didn't care. He was not going back to prison. Carlton's hand was just inches from grabbing the pistol when a SWAT officer pinned him. Carlton struggled as other agents seized him, but he wasn't going anywhere. At first, he may have thought the arrest was for his recent jailbreak, but that night he was taken into custody by Georgia authorities, and by then he must have known he was in serious trouble. Detectives drove Carlton through the streets of his hometown, past some of the old crime scenes. He probably saw the writing on the wall, because according to the detectives, he blurted out a confession. As one detective put it, he started talking, he didn't shut up, and we weren't going to stop him. But this wasn't Carlton's first time being questioned about a murder, and he knew exactly what to say. As with the cases of Nellie Farmer and Gene Frost, Carlton said he'd only burglarized the homes, but it was an accomplice who'd raped and killed all those women. As we mentioned before, confessions aren't foolproof when it comes to evidence, and it's common for people experiencing stress to admit to something they didn't do. According to Saul Kasson, professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, quote, everybody has a breaking point, and these are cases where individuals are innocent, who know they're innocent, break down and confess in order to extract themselves from a very bad situation. In this instance, we have to remember that hours earlier, a SWAT team had barged through the door of Carlton's hotel room. The stress of the situation alone may have led Carlton to confess. And even if the suspect recants his admission, as Carlton later did, it's too late. Casson said, nobody trusts the recantation as much as they do the confession. The police were sure from very early on that Carlton was their man. Prosecutors believe Carlton killed Nellie Farmer and attacked Gene Frost in New York. Then he traveled to Columbus, where he sexually assaulted and killed seven other women. His family and friends simply couldn't believe it. Sure, Carlton had his vices, but was he a murderer? Absolutely not. They didn't accept that he, of all people, could be responsible for the rape and murder of so many elderly women, some born in the early 1900s. One club owner pointed out that Carlton had a lot of attractive girlfriends over the years, and it doesn't make sense that he would, quote, leave this club with a beautiful girl, then leave her to go and rape an old woman. Plus, if Carlton had been the killer, why didn't he run earlier? He stayed in the Columbus area well after the last strangling. That suggested he was innocent. But the prosecution saw this as an open and shut case. They charged him with the deaths of three women. Florence Schiebel, Martha Thurmond, and Kathleen Woodruff. While authorities believe Carlton had a hand in all of the strangling cases throughout Winton, their strongest evidence came from those three crimes. They just needed to convince a jury. In August of 1985, 35-year-old Carlton stood in front of a packed courtroom and proclaimed his innocence. He'd spent the past two decades in and out of jail, but now he was facing the death penalty. The prosecution presented Carlton's confession and the fingerprints at the homes of the victims. Then in court, Gertrude Miller identified Carlton as the man who attacked her nine years before. The defense had little to stand on. Even if the physical evidence against Carlton was scant, the circumstantial evidence was enough to convince the jury. Within the month, they announced a guilty verdict on all three counts of murder. A day later, they recommended the death penalty. 
But Carlton fought to overturn his verdict from behind bars. And over the next few decades, the once airtight case began showing holes. The bite mark cast from Janet Coffer didn't match Carlton's mouth. At the Ruth Schwab crime scene, the investigators found a size 10 shoe print, but Carlton wore a size 13 and a half. Worse still, according to the defense, the fingerprints the prosecution had used as their main piece of physical evidence weren't actually a good match. And finally, DNA from Gertrude Miller's crime scene didn't match Carlton, posing a clear problem in her testimony. The defense said the prosecution built the case more on the circumstances surrounding the killings than the actual evidence. And according to investigative journalist David Rose, the authorities used Carlton, a black man in a southern town, as a scapegoat for the department's failure to apprehend the killer. Carlton's team continued fighting the case, but a new trial was never ordered. And in 2018, a judge denied a final request for a stay of execution. The state would put Carlton to death in the coming days. The lack of evidence casts a long shadow over Carlton's conviction. Sure, given his criminal record, the timing of his arrival in Columbus, and the clues left at the scenes, he was likely guilty of at least one homicide. But other evidence seemed to suggest there may have been a second assailant on the loose. And if that were true, it means someone got away with murder, and Carlton took the fall. In 2018, just a few hours before his execution, Carlton pleaded, quote, I want people to know you got me wrong. What they're telling the public is not the whole story. But in his final moments, he didn't say a word. He avoided eye contact with the families of the victims. He claimed innocence to the end. He didn't owe them anything. For those on the other side of the glass, Carlton's execution was the culmination of decades of waiting. Finally, the man who'd caused so much pain and suffering would be gone. There'd be no more possibility of him escaping again and hurting anyone else. Around 10.30 at night, a nurse placed an IV in Carlton's arm. Moments later, the drugs flowed into his bloodstream. Within minutes, his breath slowed before his heart finally stopped. Carlton Gary was dead. After 30 years, there was finality and even some closure. But justice, well, that depends on who you ask. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with another episode. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Stay safe out there. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ben Bishop is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Robert Tyler Walker, edited by Ben Caro and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Kitovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Greg Polson and me, Vanessa Richardson. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. 
Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.